on this episode of Dig Me Out. I think it's that sort of pull between what the radio songs are and then what the actual really good songs are is what maybe hurt this album. There's some, I think some trappings of the mid-90s on here, but outside of that, I think there's some pretty interesting stuff. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me once again, Jay Ziak. Jay, uh, how you feeling this evening? You nice and cool? Uh, nanu, nanu. Uh, no, I'm not, actually. I'm in the hottest room in the house, and it's a mid-90s, uh, sweltering, humid day here in central Ohio. You know, recently I saw an episode of How the States Got Their Shapes, that, that interesting program on the History Channel. Mm-hmm. They did an episode about how air conditioning changed the voting patterns in the United States. Okay. Well, because typically the Western and uh, Southern states had less electoral votes and not electoral votes, but um, congressional districts because there were less people and those are decided by you no know, population size. Right. Or there was air conditioning because there was less people. Once there was air conditioning, more people could move to those areas. So it rapidly over from 19 like 20 to 80 the four or five largest cities went from being all in the northeast to all in the south and west no kidding yeah well besides new york city obviously that's still the largest city in the country but yeah it it completely changed the uh, electoral map of the whole country for the better for the worse well, it depends on your side of the political spectrum. We here at Dig Me Out do not take uh, sides on uh, the political spectrum. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> we're, well, okay, we're with the Whig Party. That's, That's what we back. Or maybe the Bull Moose. That might be a, a choice for us. We're with the Whig Party. The Afghan Whig Party. Yeah! Woo! All right, lame jokes aside... Oh, God. Have a user or user. A user suggestion. No, we have a listener suggestion this evening, and this listener is actually also a guest. Mr. Neil Schmidt suggested to us that we review the Super Jesus, or as I have been referring to him for the last week, Super Jesus. Uh, They were also suggested by... I think it would be El Super Jesus. Super Jesus. El Super Jesus. Which may be a uh, possible name for my uh, luchador costume when I go to wrestle in Mexico. Reed Gavin, who emailed us for, with suggestions. He's from Australia, I believe. He gives a whole bunch of ideas for Australian bands. And he said, I see that you're reviewing El Super Jesus. Might I suggest you also check out their EP, which preceded the album, called Eight Step Rail. And I said... We don't do EPs, but thanks for the suggestion. We, but we will be getting to, <laughs> we will be getting to one of Reed's other suggestions in the coming months. So Reed, look forward to that. We're gonna, we're gonna review one of your picks. Um, but right now, I think we should tackle the Super Jesus. What do you think, Jay? We got nothing else to do. That's true. 
I can watch five episodes of The Office in a row. That's about it. Yeah, I could sit here and sweat, so. Or I could go to the cooler part of the house. Right. No, we're gonna, here sweat. we're gonna keep you in the hottest part of the house for as long as possible. Thanks, I appreciate that. Yes. The Super Jesus, El Super Jesus, the Super Jesus, were formed in Adelaide, Australia in 1994. Lead singer Sarah McLeod was 16 when she formed the band with the name Hell's Kitchen with her guitar teacher, Chris Tennant. Wow, she went from one bad, bad, bad name to another. Yeah, from Hell's Kitchen to the Super Jesus. <laughs> uh, drummer Paul Berryman and bassist Stuart Rudd soon joined the band. And Any relation to Phil Rudd? I don't believe so, but that's worth checking into after the show. Phil Rudd, of course, of ACD. Also, maybe also. Rudd is like Smith or Johnson. Australia. Uh, it's it's a, the most popular last name. That's possible. Now, here's the interesting thing. You, you just you just mocked their name. Um, the name change was based on the fact that at the time there was the Jesus and Mary chain, Jesus Jones, the Jesus Lizard. They thought, hey, how about another Jesus band? <laughs> Are you serious? That's, that's the reason. Oh, that's horrible. I mean... So, it's kind of awesome, but it's kind of horrible at the same time. So two years after forming, they released the EP that I mentioned, Eight Step Rail, and that spent several months at the top of Australia's independent music charts and won two ARIA awards, or ARIA awards, which I guess are the equivalent of a Grammy in Australia. Uh, they won those in 1997 for Best New Band and Best Debut Single, Shut My Eyes. That year... The band traveled to the U.S. to work, work with Matt. I'm going to screw up this guy's last name because it's got too many consonants in it. Matt Serlectic, who had previously worked with Collective Soul and Matchbox 20, to record Sumo, which is the album we're reviewing, for Warner Music, which was released in 1998. Uh, shortly after... Chris Tennant left the band, then he rejoined the band, and then he left the band again permanently in 1999. The band released two albums uh, following Sumo. In 2001, they released Jet Age, and in 2003, they released Rock Music. They left Warner Music Australia in 2004, and Sarah McLeod released her first solo album, solo album in 2005. The band has never officially announced their breakup, but no new music has been recorded or released. I, just to give you an idea of this band's sort of importance, in Australia, they were huge. And Sarah McLeod's had a successful solo career. I believe she's putting out her second solo album um, pretty soon. And when discussing it in June, she mentioned that there was always the chance that Super Jesus might get back together. And the papers in Australia announced, it's the biggest thing in, in Australian music, Super Jesus is getting back together. And then she had to issue a statement saying, I just meant at some point in the future, possibly. Not right now. So there will be no uh, Super Jesus in 2011, possibly in 2012. 
Goddamn kangaroos. Yeah. So the I had no idea this band that was so popular. Yeah. And if you go to their um, like Amazon.com to buy a version of this album, there's t- tons and tons of praise from Australian <laughs> listeners about this band. We're reviewing the original Australian release, which was 10 songs plus a bonus track of Shut My Eyes, which was the song that they won uh, best new sing- best debut single for from their original EP. The American version has different tracks, but I wanted to go with the Australian version also was the one that I found. So that's the only one. So, Jay, what did you think of the Super Jesus? Well, I got to hand it to you, or hand it to the Super Jesus. They stumped me. Um, I've been pretty good at picking when bands are from either Australia or the Scandinavia so far, and I had no idea that this band was Australian. So, uh, good on them for that. Uh, this is a pretty good band. Um there's some i think some trappings of the mid 90s on here but outside of that i think there's some pretty interesting stuff um at their best they remind me of us uh, well they remind me of swerve driver from a music and standpoint and and from a guitar standpoint specifically um i think the thing that makes them different is is the vocal which at times I think really benefits the music quite a bit and then other times it seems to kind of be overlaid on top of the music and maybe not completely uh, integrated and working with what's going on musically I don't know did you sort of get that sense too I mean she's got a really good voice but there was something strange about um, didn't seem like she was necessarily always with the band or the band wasn't always necessarily with her you know I, I I, I know what you're saying, and I'm wondering, and I don't want to say that it's purely you know, age-related, but she was basically 18 or 19 years old when they recorded this album. That's pretty wow. young, and I don't know if she had like a full command of her voice and knew how to use it as well as she mm-hmm. could, because there are some songs where she sounds awesome, and she's totally in lock step with the band she's playing off of the guitars and, and what the rhythms are and then there are other songs where she's just flowing over everything and it doesn't feel like the two are connected right and i i'm wondering if that's just seasoning that she hadn't had as much experience as necessary for a songwriter and for a vocalist um that's necessary to like really gel mm-hmm. one thing i picked up on that I'm wondering if you picked up on too, and it really hit me when I found out who were the um, producers and engineers on this album. I mentioned Matt Selectic, who had worked with Collective Soul, and I kind of heard hints of Collective Soul guitar tones here and there. But the other one was Jeff Tomei, who was an engineer for the Smashing Pumpkins. And in the second half of the album, especially on the slower stuff, there were a lot of pumpkin-esque guitar leads with that like fuzzy but very like layered mid-range tone that they used 
and those clean but um, I would say like bended guitar notes that at, at, in mid 90s Corrigan would play and James Eha, especially on songs like um, I'm Stained track six. Totally got a slow pumpkin sound to it. Did you hear that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I had six and ten um, in my notes as marked with pumpkins yep. influence. You know, one of the things they're using—I don't know which of the two songs—but it was sort of more of a mid-tempo or slow song, and it had a—I uh, uh, don't know what—kind of a flange effect on the guitar as they strummed, and or a. I'm not quite sure what the effect would be, but it definitely had that mid mid era Smashing Pumpkins feel to it. Um, particularly, like you said, from a from a guitar tone standpoint, rhythm standpoint, and you're right, even even the leads at times have that. Um, I wouldn't say it's prevalent throughout the whole album, so it could have. I think it comes and goes. Like you hear it um, for a song or half a song, and then it kind of fades away and you don't think about it again which you know very well could have been the influence of a producer you know kind of come in and just craft parts of of songs or engineering them in a particular way and kind of push them you know in the direction of, of them sounding a little bit like like the pumpkins at times yeah i don't think it was a you know we're going to make this album sound like the pumpkins i think it was more like you know, maybe it was the engineer's influence or maybe it was the band go turning to the engineer and saying hey you know that tone that is on Siamese Dream on this one song. Can you, you think you could dial something up like that? Or maybe he was like, you know, there's something interesting going on here. Why don't we try using this sort of a tone? I'm, I don't think it was like, let's make Siamese Dream, because that's not how the majority of the album sounds. Um, it actually sounds sort of like a mixture of a lot of different 90s bands. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I meant by, I think one of my first comments was, you know, there's there's moments where it falls into some stereotypical mid '90s style riffs, even lyrics. Um, uh, that's when it gets its its least interesting to me. So, like uh, track five.
think is, is a song that has just, you know, the most blueprint drop D riff you can imagine, you know, and it kind of comes off as sounding like a generic Stone Temple Pilots riff. That's funny. I, mean, I wrote that down for another song. I wrote that for track nine that ended that the riff reminded me of um, second album, I think, which is called that purple second yeah. CP album. It reminded me of some of the stuff on the second STP album. Yeah, I had that. Actually, I wrote down the only note I have for that was that the riff almost sounded like helmet, but it was probably you know it's probably a drop D thing, just not super inventive. I mean, the thing that's weird though is it it kind of still works, even though I sort of recognize it as like okay, wow, this is you know really a typical kind of mid to late '90s you know he- heavy quote unquote alternative rock riff. Um, there's enough variety and there's enough texture. Um, and she's a good enough singer that it kind of, and they're unique enough that for those moments you sort of forgive it because they kind of turn it around and do something that's a little bit more them, a little bit more unique. Um, so it, it didn't it didn't kill the album for me, but it, you definitely you know hear hear spots here and there. I think the opening track, you know, starts off with a drum loop, which was you know ridiculously popular in the late '90s, yeah, and early 2000s. There's some moments like that that you know, really timestamp it. It, it kind of reminded me, the guitar riff that's in that song uh, reminded me of um, Super Unknown or Down on the Upside Soundgarden. You know, after they had left the you know odd time signatures and Black Sabbath riffing and became more of an alt-rock band, it seemed like they were cribbing a little bit more from the later you know, Soundgarden um, stuff, Super Unknown especially. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this is, you know, we reviewed Ammonia, which was an Australian band, and um, we're going to get to other Australian bands. And, you know, we mentioned, or you brought up Australian bands doing a good job of sort of taking multiple influences and then and then sort of combining them in a unique, unique way. And I think there's, you know, this is a first album, and it's a young lead singer. And I think there are some really good attempts at doing just that you know taking the heaviness of pumpkins and Soundgarden, and then you mentioning swerve driver was i think apropos because there's definitely some of that early 90s british i don't want to say shoegaze because we sort of agreed that swerve driver is not shoegaze but just more indulgent um you know songwriting in terms of letting the guitars go to the forefront on some of the songs and uh um, yeah yeah like track eight to me sounds musically sounds a lot like a swerve driver song yeah uh, i think the things that that make it that way are um the interplay between the two guitars there's these accent riffs that that pop out at you
there's these uh, picking patterns with lots of where they you know have a lot of effects on them. There's just this weird like uh, thing that Swerve Driver does that they they do as well, where they just they accent particular notes that that makes it almost sound like a weird time signature, but I don't think it is. I think it's just kind of the way that they accent things make it sound just a little bit, a little bit, you know, different, almost like a three four kind of time thing. Um, you know, that's I think where the Swerve Driver piece comes in for me, sort of the. And then those those changes in accent give it that the feel for me with the Swift Driver where it's like it's almost like the tempo is they're constantly playing with the tempo even though they're they're not I mean they're still you know on a click track or whatever but just the way they change the accents and stuff he sort of changes the whole momentum of the of the songs like continuously through the whole thing so I mean honestly I think on on that song and even track two the if you you know, replace the vocal. It could, they could totally be Swerve Driver. What songs did you think of the last track, uh, number eleven, "Shut My Eyes"? Um, I really thought it stood out to me. Um, I had it, you know, noted as probably the most pop-friendly mm-hmm. song on the album, or the most straightforward. Um, I, I wasn't, I didn't love it. But just from the sense of, you know, the fact that it was labeled a hidden track and it was the last song on the album and it was the most sort of pop-oriented seemed strange I, I find to it, me. Yeah, because I find it odd that it was it won best debut single, and yet I don't. It's not really that hooky. Like it's not really something that I would have imagined being a radio song. I mean, it's it's poppy in the sense that it's not a heavy song like. The first track, Down Again, is pretty. It's yeah. got like a heavy riff to it, and um, and track nine yep. mentioned earlier, Dead Ended. So it's kind of an odd track that you're right. It does sort of stick out in terms of it's, it's sort of in between the sounds of this album. Yeah, it 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 um, it's a different even a song, even the songwriting format that's used is a little bit more straightforward and. I mean, actually, that's, and that's, that's why I probably don't love that song. It, um, I, I, I like the other material, a, more because, just the the way that they, they construct the songs is so unconventional and not necessarily pop oriented, that it it kind of works better for me because they they don't have the hooks. She doesn't write really memorable melodies, but she's got a good voice and they from a playing standpoint they play really well and they have a good sound and some of the parts are interesting so to me i'd rather hear them at least on this album i'd rather hear the stuff that's not trying to be pop songs i think when they do the the times on here when they do i think attempt to write a, a radio song it's I don't know, for me it's the least interesting and the least successful. So like track um uh what's the one with all the strings? Now and track then. four. It's kind of a mid mid tempo ballady thing and it's got all kinds of strings all over it. Like I don't know if the keyboard strings or orchestra or whatever it is, but um just it didn't really play f- really well for me. It doesn't you're gonna do that you commit to doing it and you really play off the vocal and you really just 
you know, you, 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 you do everything you can to enhance that vocal and try to write, you know, memorable melodies. And the strings are just kind of there to be there because they probably were like, well, if we had strings of this, maybe it'll be, you know, a bigger radio hit or something. There's a couple other songs like that. It tends to be the slower ones where, and, and then the last on the track where you can kind of tell that, I don't know if it's, if it's singer pushing it or just, or just the band in general is trying to figure out like how to write a radio hit. And it doesn't quite work as well for me as some of the other songs where they just, they're just being a rock band, you know, just doing what Well, comes I think naturally. they were definitely trying to write for the radio on songs like that because I mean, look at who they're working with. They're working with a guy who had worked with, Collective Soul and Matchbox 20, and a guy who had worked with Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. I mean, those are some of the most successful bands of the 90s, and they were rock bands that were able to play on the mainstream charts and sell a lot of records. Yeah. So, in terms of, you know, I, th I think we've covered a lot of the album, but in terms of why this thing didn't really make a dent in the United States, I mean, they definitely tried to. They worked with American producers. They got signed to an American label. Or, or at least for you know distributing and whatever um i think it's that sort of pull between what the radio songs are and then what the actual really good songs are is what maybe hurt this album this came yeah. out in 98 I mean, you're talking about you know this is those bands especially pumpkins are making electronic albums uh collective soul has made yeah at least one possibly two unsuccessful albums at this point matchbox 20 is doing fine but they're doing it in a much poppier way yeah and unless you're gonna this is sort of what we talked about in our previous ones unless you're doing a really heavy corn limp biscuit creed nickelback you know that sort of thing or you're doing a really pop friendly matchbox 20 Three doors down. Well, you had the Dave Matthews thing was huge then, right? So there was sort of these facets that had been created where a band like this that sat in the middle, you know, didn't have probably didn't have space anymore. I think if this album had come out a few years earlier, they may have had a shot. I think there's some songs on here um, where if radio had pushed it and you heard it a couple times, I think it would have been. You know, probably a marginal alternative rock hit, or you know, single. 
I definitely feel like this is an album that, you know, it intrigues me to begin with just because the sounds are really good and the tones are really good and her voice is good and sort of it buys itself time. And then the more time you spend with it, sort of the, uh, the songwriting, you know, kind of comes out at you and then the things that do become more memorable and, and sort of the same way that, you know, I am with Swerve Driver where, you know, the sound of Swerve Driver I really like and, um, but sometimes it takes a little while for those songs to really kind of get their hooks in you and grow on you. And I think this band is, for me, is similar in that way for, um, for, for the better songs in the album. There's some songs on here where I just don't think there's probably three or four where, you know, I just don't have much of an interest just because they're so generic. But for the rest of the album, uh, I think it's really, um, it gets better the more you listen to it. And I think it becomes more memorable the more you listen to it. I think I have the same sort of, uh, it's got some good stuff and it's got some, not bad, just uninteresting stuff that just sort of floats by and you're like, all right, just get to the next good one. <laughs> I really like the guitar player. I don't know. There's there two guitar nope. players in this band. It seems probably. Like oh, really? In the studio. They probably pulled everything up and yeah. You know, maybe they took an extra guy out on the road with them. But Chris Tennant was the main guitar player uh, for this band. So the w- the one band that kept coming to mind, and I meant to go back and listen to the, to the the album I have of them, but didn't get a chance, was Edna Swap. Huh. I don't know if you've ever listened to them, but. Um, so they did, they wrote the song that Natalie and Brulia covered and had a big hit with. Yeah, they actually wrote that song and, um, their album, I want to go back and listen to it, but I think it's in this ballpark. It might be a little bit more straightforward, but, um, I remember it being pretty similar to this. That is a definite candidate for a future Dig Me Out. There you go. There you go. All right, I think we've covered the Super Jesus. Uh, I want to say thanks to Neil for suggesting this. And he saw them live, I think. I think that's how he, he discovered them. He traveled down to so Brisbane and this is a band that... took in a couple of shrimp on the barbie. And... I think he said he saw them in Las Vegas that's right, or something. He did. But uh, knowing that, and you know, I was thinking about that. I was listening to this album, and I bet they were really good live kind of see like seeing they'd be one of those bands where you know if you if you'd never heard of them you saw them live you'd probably walk probably go by pretty impressed and wanting to yeah i could see yeah. that they, they i bet in terms of being able to bring the you know, the weight and the and the like, volume that this band sounds like they could bring um in terms of the riffs that they have and um they'd be interested well let's face it Anytime you see a live band that has a legitimately talented singer, right. you take notice. I mean, she's got she's got the tone. She's got pretty good range. I think that's the thing I'm so, most interested in you know. going away from this is how did her songwriting evolve, especially not just on the two albums, which we're not going to review because they came out in the 2000s, but also on her solo stuff. I wouldn't mind you know sampling a track here or there just to see how she evolved did she get you know uh you know more interesting with her songwriting did she um, sometimes i wished she was a little more gutsy and and let loose 
So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would... I'm curious to hear it. I would guess that she got more pop. I, I don't even get... I don't get the sense that she wrote a lot of this stuff. I could be completely wrong, but just listening to it, it sounds like the band wrote it and she sang over it. So if I was to project that across or project that out to her solo career, I would say she probably, if she did write, probably the music was completely different. And if she collaborated with somebody else, it was probably pretty different too. <laughs> Maybe dra dramatically different. Perhaps one of our so, listeners can chime in with an email or a post on Facebook or a Twitter tweet to let us know uh, what ended up happening to Sarah McLeod. That could be wrong. She could have wrote the whole album. I don't know. But I just got it sounds like maybe the band wrote a bunch of was writing the music and then she was just singing over top of it. Maybe. Guess we'll find out. Or not. We'll see if we have the, the energy yeah. or not. We've got a, I got a few other billion things I got to look into as far as uh, 90s bands go. I don't know if I'm going to investigate the songwriting of Sarah and, and then we Then we have to go to Bed Bath & Beyond. We just, just don't know so if we'll have time for it all. All right, that does it for The Super Jesus, El Super Jesus. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode with myself and Jay, and we will be back next week with another Dig Me Out. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.